You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Father, thank you so much for this space this morning. God, as we as we take a few minutes to to put ourselves in your word, to just hear from you, God. We ask that you would speak and you would speak clearly and that hearts that are hurting and hearts that are joyful and hearts that are experiencing and hearts that are numb, that, that every single one of us would be quiet enough and slow enough to hear from you this morning. Jesus, we love you. We need you. So we ask today that the thoughts in our heads, the words in our mouth, these things would be pleasing, worshipful to you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. We're back in Mark today. I don't know what I said last week, but it must have been offensive because no one came back. No one came back. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad you braved the first frost. Is that what it was? Is everyone at home trying to desperately prepare their gardens for winter? Uh, I don't know. But glad you guys are here. We're, we're still in the Gospel of Mark today, and I don't have much introduction besides just the fact that I'm, I'm excited to get in this text. So grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we really believe uh, that the Word of God being in the hands of God's people is important. So we have house Bibles at the end of each row. If you don't have one today, man, just look down to the end of your row. Someone will pass you one. If you don't have a Bible, please just take one of those home or, or talk to one of our pastors and let us get you a nice one. We, uh, we, we just think that's, that's really important. So we're in Mark chapter 10 today. And if you were with us last week, uh, we spent time talking about divorce which was fun. Oh, that's why. <laughs> we spent time talking last week about how, how God is so faithful to us, that God is faithful in our faithlessness, that, that God is the perfect spouse to his people. And today we're going to talk about God as the good and perfect father. And, and even as I say that, I realize that 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 phrase is hard and is painful for some of us in the room, just as our text last week. But, beloved, I, I promise you, I promise you, if you open your heart to what God has to say out of the text this morning, you will, you will hear something you need to hear. So be with me as we read this. We're in Mark chapter 10, starting in the 13th verse, we hear this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. And this is the word of the Lord. So this text is really simple, but man, what a beautiful text. 
What a beautiful text. And I, I know that this is one of those phrases, this is one of those pieces of the gospel story that gets pulled out a lot. This image is almost trope-ish to those of us who spent some time in church world and church culture. But I want to encourage you to engage this picture today and let this picture strike you. Beloved, if you, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Jesus really, really loves to bless and provide for his children. He enjoys it. It's, it's something, in that, what I love about the beauty of this text is, is that you don't just see Jesus as this detached figure or this rabbi or this theologian or this pastor, but you see his, his passion in this. Beloved, Jesus loves to spend time with his kids, to bless them and provide for them. We're going we're gonna to dig through that today. And the way we're going to do that is the way we always engage a text. We're going to walk back through this. We're going to look at just a couple little cultural pieces, one contextual issue that might, might pull things together a little bit. And that's going to bring us around to the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Galatians. And we'll land on some teaching from Jesus and Luke. But I think, I think there's something for us today. So the story is really simple. If you recall where we've been the last little bit, Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem, right? He is, in Mark's telling of the story, spent most of his time ministering and serving in and around Galilee, and now he is working his way south towards Jerusalem. And we saw last week that he took a detour and crossed over the Jordan River into a place called Perea, where John the Baptist was killed. It's a place that Herod, the same king who rules over Galilee, where Jesus is from, rules over this southern part of Palestine. I know a lot of you guys are like, cool, I'm super interested in first century Palestinian geography. But, but it, just, it just gives us an image of it. Jesus is making his way south, and he's taking this detour. This is not the most direct route to Jerusalem. And what we see in that is that Jesus is kind of tying up the loose ends of the various spaces where he has done ministry. And so he's crossed over to the east side of the Jordan. He's in this region called Perea, and we've seen him do ministry here. He taught the crowds. We saw the Pharisees come and challenge him with this kind of trap question regarding marriage and divorce. He's responded to that and shut them down. And now, kind of in this space, we see parents and families trying to bring their children to Jesus for a blessing. So as they're kind of bum-rushing him, trying to get their kids in there for hugs and high-fives and side hugs, I'm sure Jesus was into side hugs. That's probably his main methodology of blessing. As parents are trying to get him in there, the disciples get ticked and they start rebuking the kids. Get away, what are you doing? And pushing them back. And as Jesus sees this, he gets indignant with his disciples and blasts them with this really interesting teaching about children in God's kingdom. And then the story ends with Jesus inviting the kids in and he embraces them and blesses them and loves them. And that's it. It's a really simple story. It's really short. What I love about Mark's telling of Jesus's life is that Mark seemingly continually gives us these, almost these vignettes, right? His stories are really short, 
Mark always gets right to the point when he tells the story, and yet Mark always zones in on the humanity of Jesus and his followers. You get more raw emotion in Mark's telling of the story than you do in, in the other Gospels. In fact, this phrase here, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, when, when Jesus gets indignant, that's a very specific word. That's, this is the only time it's used of Jesus anywhere. He gets really ticked. <laughs> but, but Mark gives us this just really blunt picture of what happens. We're, we're drawn into the emotion of the story. And so I want to I wanna allow that, just kind of this unique telling that Mark gives us, to kind of fuel this a little bit today. So, so a couple things to point out for us. The first thing is, is simply this. Kids in this day are not thought of the way kids today are. And I know we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but when we initially read this story, the disciples seem really mean, right? Like parents are bringing their kids for Jesus to bless them, and the disciples start rebuking them. The word there that gets used for rebuke is the same word Mark uses for casting out demons. It's a strong word. It's, get the heck out of here. You are not welcome here. Go away. This space is not for you. Back off. It's really strong language the disciples are using as sending these kids and their parents away. And that seems so harsh to us, right? But there's actually a couple really good reasons why they would do this. The first one is cult, or the second one is cultural. The first one is really, really just kind of blunt and efficient. Jesus just told them, if you remember, Jesus just told them he's the Messiah, right? This journey to Jerusalem was precipitated by the transfiguration where Jesus showed himself as a perfect, like complete in his heavenly form. And he said, by the way, you guys were right. I'm the Messiah. It's really sick. And they were like, oh my gosh. And he was, yeah, cool. Let's go to Jerusalem. So in the disciples' mind, even though Jesus has over and over and over on this journey been telling them the Messiah is not what you think it is, they're still like, this is crazy. Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem, things are about to go down. So these guys are stoked. So when they're already off on this little side tangent, they've already taken a detour from their mission, and now these kids and these parents are coming, slowing Jesus down even more. The disciples are like, stop! We don't have time for this. Get out of here. Get away. We've got to go free the Jewish people from Roman oppression. You can get your kid blessed later right? And it kind of makes sense. It makes even more sense when we start thinking about the blunt fact that in this day, kids were essentially worthless. And that's really terrible to say. But, but there's truth in this. You see, the, the first century people, and especially the Middle Eastern, the Jewish people, they understood their kids way differently than we do. It's not that they didn't value their kids, right? You can read about the blessing of children in the Old Testament multiple times. We just talked about this a few weeks ago when we did our, our blessing of our kids. But, but man, it, it, was, it was a different understanding. Kids were seen as a blessing in that they grew up and turned into adults who would help you run the house. They were a resource. But when they're little, they're just kind of a pain. In fact, children in this day in Jewish culture were not even counted in the census as people. They were counted amongst their dad's property list. 
And laws in place in that day allowed dads to buy and sell children as property. I know, it's brutal, right? <laughs> but it's, it's a reality that in this day, man, if you're a kid, stay out of the way, stay quiet, unless dad asks for you. And when you hit 13, then you'll be good. But until then, just stay quiet and stay out of the way. And that's, that's distasteful to us. Ironically, in our culture, we way undervalue the practical aspects of having children, but we overvalue these kind of emotional and relational aspects of children where we go, man, I don't think about my kid in terms of a blessing from God as a resource to my family, but she's so cute, right? So we kind of we switch that. But the thing you have to understand in this day, people picking up their little toddlers and, and their five-year-olds and bringing them to Jesus, that, that was honestly like, it, this sounds harsh, but it would be the same thing as being like, hey, check out my chickens. They're awesome. Will you pray a blessing over my chickens? I need a good harvest this fall. It's just kind of, they're just kind of not important in the society. And so not only, from the disciples' point of view, is Jesus on a mission that's really important, the stuff these people are trying to distract Jesus with is stupid stuff. It's kids. They're a dime a dozen. Get out of the way. We have stuff to do. Get out of here. And they rebuke these kids. And they rebuke their parents. Go away. There is not a space for you here. And again, we read it as really, really harsh. But if you put yourselves in their space, in their head space, in their, in their mentality, you kind of get it. This seems like a distraction from the work of the kingdom. And Jesus has been preaching for years now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. God is doing something new. You guys can be a part of it. And Jesus just told his disciples, you guessed it, I'm the Messiah. Stuff's about to go down. These guys are like, we don't have time for this. We got to get to Jerusalem and do this thing. The Messiah is here. Israel can be redeemed. Our people can be freed. We don't have time to bless these kids. And Jesus' response here is intense. He blasts them. He gets indignant I'm not, and, and that word, by the way, doesn't fully capture the Greek word that gets expressed here. Essentially, what we're talking about, the, the word here, is about anger that is fully expressed in the moment. It's not brooded upon, it's not thought through, it's not anger that's been submitted to reason. This anger is vented in the moment at the target of the wrath. Jesus is ticked when he sees what these guys are doing He lays into them. What the heck are you doing? Get away from those kids. Let them over here. Jesus is furious. It's crazy. Like, there's only a couple times in the stories of the Gospels where we really see Jesus lean into his anger. And some of those scenes are famous, right? Like Jesus flipping over tables in the temple. But this is one we don't talk about super often. Jesus becomes really angry at his best friends because they kept the kids away from him, because they were trying to rush him, because they didn't have time for kids. Guys, if there's, if there's something you need to hear today, it's, it's probably this. 
Jesus really, really loves kids and loves spending time with them. Enough that in this moment, he becomes indignant at his closest friends in the world because they're trying to distract him from spending time with children. Now we can, we can talk about, I want to talk about a couple different aspects of this. And, th- and this is where we can, we, we've kind of put some of like the context around the story. But I want, to, I want to dig a little bit here into the person of Jesus and some of our cultural blinders that make this story a little strange to us. First off, we value kids. We want to see presidential candidates kissing babies, right? We, we value that stuff. And so this kind of makes sense to us. But Jesus is pushing against a cultural norm by loving these kids and being, being outraged, essentially, that they're kept from him. But the other thing that I think is really interesting here is that Jesus is pushing on some of our cultural understandings of children and love and relationship also. Because here's the deal. When you get right down to it, Jesus is a 30-year-old single man who loves hanging out with kids. And he's angry that these kids will be kept from him. Jesus loves kids. He wants to touch them and hug them and bless them and spend time with them. And even as I say that, that phrasing makes some of us uncomfortable. Because they have a weird stigma towards masculinity and singleness and children and how that works out. I want you guys to hear today, Jesus has no such stigma. He doesn't think in that way. He loves little kids. And that somehow feeds into his masculinity as, as a called by God single man who's given his life to the ministry. He joyfully, joyfully prioritizes time to be with kids and love and intimacy and physical touch. And again, that pushes cultural buttons for us. But guys, that's your Jesus. That's your Lord and Savior. That's, that's the man who, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God on our behalf. A young, single guy who really loves kids. I I wonder how many of us put Jesus in that context. But I would encourage you, I would encourage you to allow that to speak into your theology of children and of church. You know, God has blessed Red Tree with a lot of kids. Most of them are girls. Lots of girls. Lots and lots and lots of girls. If Brandon and Lisa Hughes were here, I'd be like, this is mostly your fault. <laughs> Lots of girls in our church. Just a few boys. But man, when we think about how we love and steward and care for those kids, Jesus has given us a beautiful model, men of our church, of what it means to love and spend time with kids as a man. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a gospel thing, it's a Jesus thing. We should think about that. That should inform our theology, and that should inform our practice, and that should inform when we talk about what it means for our church to be a family. We talk about what it means, parents, we talk about what it means to allow the family of the church to speak into the lives of your children. 
There are plenty, plenty of people outside you and your spouse who should be loving and blessing and hugging and spending time with your kids. That's what Jesus showed us. And that's not the main point of this text, but I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't actually talk about that for a minute. Jesus loves kids. It's the plain and simple meaning of this text. He loved hanging out with kids. That's so weird to us. I, I was talking this week, I, like 10 different people, because it ticked me off, about this, this dumb meme where people are making fun of Daniel Craig for taking his kid on a walk and putting him in like a little baby holder thing. And I'm like, that's so dumb. He's a dad and he loves his kid. That's so cool. Guys, Jesus shows us that. He shows us what it means to be a loving dad who loves to be with his kids. And be, be moved by that. Be challenged by that. Let that push on your cultural assumptions of masculinity and singleness and appropriate relationships and how we understand family and church and children. Allow Jesus to push your buttons on that. Secondly, I think Jesus' engagement here, I think, I think this speaks to I think this speaks to something larger than just the plain meaning that Jesus loves kids. You see, Jesus understands kids in ways we don't. He understands kids more fully than we do. He lived in a world where, where kids were pretty much dismissed, where kids were pretty much better, better not seen, right, or heard. It's just like, eh, if you survive till 13, I'll let you inherit something or I'll marry you, marry you off. But until then, just kind of stay, stay, out, stay out of the way. That'll be about it. That'll be our relationship for a decade or so. Jesus understood that that was a flawed understanding of kids, but he also would look at us today and he would see the flawed worship we have of youth in our culture. We elevate children, undeveloped children who are still growing and trying to figure out the world. We elevate them oftentimes above where they should be. I think Jesus sees kids as they truly are. And you know, I think the beautiful thing here, and and the thing that is so important, that that both swings of the pendulum that so easily miss when we talk about kids is, and kids are so dependent and so trusting by nature. A lot of you guys know my daughter, Millie. She's three years old, little Mills. She's a sweetheart. Uh, She's also really independent, Right? She's a little spitfire. If you serve in kids' ministry, you know. Melissa's a little spitfire. She does what she wants most of the time. And yet, and yet, her level of independence only goes so far. (laughs) Right? And and any of you that have parented kids, whether it's toddlers or teenagers or adults who've moved out and gotten married, you know the independence only goes so far. My daughter loves to dress herself and she loves to complain when I try and tell her what to wear. But the reality is, we pick what clothes go in her dresser. Right? She's not going out and getting a job and earning money and buying her own clothes yet. She just picks out what's out of the dresser. I'm like, those don't match. I love this outfit. Okay, sure. (laughs) But the independence only goes so far. Right? Ultimately, man, she's fully dependent on us. 
insanely dependent on us, and insanely trusting of us to meet those needs. Never once has my daughter asked me in earnesty, hey, are we going to are we going to keep eating meals? Is that going to be a thing we do? You're going to keep, I'm kind of outgrowing these clothes. Are you going to keep buying clothes? No. She just assumes it'll be there. Her question is, what's for dinner, not will there be dinner? Right? Because she's a toddler. Because she's totally dependent. Because she's totally trusting in that dependence. See, Jesus sees this in children. He sees this truth. He, he sees this truth, and he sees that this truth is larger than just children. I think this is why Jesus' line is so powerful. Such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, the, the temptation of our culture is to read that passage and be like, oh, oh, Jesus is talking about the beauty, the innocence, the, the, the sweetness of children, that, that when we enter the kingdom because of the blood of Christ, there is this innocence about us. But if you spend like 15 minutes with a toddler, you know that cannot possibly be the case. Right? There's no innocence to be found. There's sweetness. Sometimes. Depends on whether or not you say no. Right? What Jesus is talking about here is this sense of utter dependence. This expectant dependence and trust. Jesus understands kids because Jesus designed kids. Jesus designed this beautiful stage of life where children get to be dependent on adults. And get to trust them. Get to find life and joy from people who take care of them. Jesus designed this stage of life because it speaks to our relationship with God, which is the third piece here. See, Jesus understands kids, but he also understands that we are kids. He understands that this relationship of a, of a child to a parent speaks beautifully and powerfully to the relationship of the creature to the creator. See, just as in last week's text, we, we saw how this trick question around marriage, Jesus brought it back to this beautiful truth of design and gospel and kingdom, saying, man, if you're arguing about divorce, you don't even get marriage. Let me tell you about marriage. Marriage speaks to the beauty of a faithful God who chases after his bride. And in the same way, Jesus here says, oh man, if you are pushing away these kids, if you are too busy to spend time blessing and loving kids, then you do not understand the kingdom. Let me tell you about the kingdom. The kingdom is children coming to their father. The kingdom is dependent expectancy. And if you don't have time for kids because of the kingdom then you're probably not part of the kingdom. You're probably missing it. And so Jesus pushes here and says, man, unless you engage the kingdom like a child, there's no way 
There's no way you can meet God. There's no way you can get there. Imagine, imagine the ridiculousness if I brought home, probably from like Savers or something because I'm a cheapskate, but I bring home some winter clothes for my kid, right? We lay them out. She tries them on. She's like, oh, cool. These are cool. And then she pulls out her little pad and pen because she can write, you know. And she's like, I'm going to take down my ledger, Ted. Keep track of what I owe you. I'll pay this back later. Don't you worry about it. I'm getting some hours next week out with Brandon building decks. He pays good. I'll get you paid back for this. That would be ridiculous. It would be insane. First off, Brandon wouldn't hire her. That's illegal. Second off, she would do a terrible job. He'd fire her. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, right? If, if she came to me with this independence that said, hey, thanks for the clothes, I'll pay you back. That would be ridiculous. Not only does she not have the means or capability of doing that, I would be insulted that she wanted to. Right? She's my kid. She's three. Kid, let me give you some clothes. Just wear them. Right? In the same way, Jesus says, man, you can't, you can't approach the kingdom of God and be like, wow, God, thanks for the kingdom. Thanks for the blessing. Thanks for the life. Thanks for the salvation. Thanks for the forgiveness. Thanks for all of this. I'm keeping track of it. Don't worry. I'll pay you back. I got this. Look at how my life is now. Because you gave me these blessings, I'm going to live this way to make up for it. Isn't that awesome? It's not how it works. There's no way. You don't have the capability. You don't have the resources. You don't have the skills. You are dependent. And if you try and act as if you're not dependent, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. So Jesus says, come with the dependence of a child, but come with the expectancy of the dependence of a child. Not just the, I can't do this. I'm stuck. I'm helpless. But the, I can't do this. I'm so glad you got this, Dad. Dad, when's dinner? Right? Jesus says, come to the kingdom as a child because he understands that we are all child. We are all children. I, I think of this You know, this is where the analogy breaks down. The goal in parenting is to help your child cease to be dependent. Right? Millie's going to grow up. And Lord willing, she'll move out someday. And she'll get a job. And she'll figure out what she wants to do with her life. Maybe she'll get married. And who knows? Maybe she'll translate the Bible into some language we haven't heard of. Maybe she'll go to space. She'll figure stuff out. And eventually I'll stop bringing home bags of clothes to give to her. And eventually I'll stop cooking her dinner. And if I play my cards right, eventually she'll stop being dependent on me. And I'll get old and I'll be dependent on her. And I'll move into her house and she'll change my diapers. (laughs) You get what I'm saying, right? The goal is for her to grow up and grow past me. And grow beyond me. And be independent of me. But beloved, you never grow out of being a child of God. You never grow out of dependence. There's no point where you grow up and move out. 
You are dependent on your Creator. And beloved, let me tell you something. He loves that. Because He loves kids. He loves that. He loves that you are dependent on Him. He loves that you get to expect Him to provide for you. To care for you. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. I want us to actually look at this text. In the first verse of the fourth chapter of the letter to the Galatian church, we hear this. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Beloved, the, the call of the kingdom, the call of Jesus is that you might receive sonship. That you might be a son of God. And ladies in the room, you're like, um, excuse me. But I want to talk about that. God did not adopt you, women of the church, as his daughter. He adopted you as his son. That's really weird. Remember the culture where this is being written. Daughters don't get an inheritance in this culture. Their inheritance is a good marriage. But sons, sons get the inheritance. And so God says, Beloved, I have adopted you as my son. You are fully integrated into the family. Everything I have is yours. The God of the universe tells you that. Everything I have is yours. Everything. You are my beloved son. You are drawn into the family. You are included. You are an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You are not a second-class citizen. There are people in this room who have adopted or who will adopt, and you understand this more than the rest of us, that an adopted child is, guess what, a child. It's a child. There is no second class. There is no just as good or not as good. It's their children. Beloved, the blood of Christ has washed you clean and brought you into the fold of the family of God and you are his son. Women included, as weird as that is. You are a son of God. Washed and made full equal as an heir. Everything he has is yours. This is the truth and the call of the gospel. That you've been drawn into the family of God. That you are a child dependent on a good father who will provide for you. And you get to expect that. 
You don't have to come to your father with, with fear and trepidation. He's your dad and he loves you. And you can ask him what's for dinner with the assumption that he's already making it. Beloved, this is the truth of our gospel. This is what God calls us to. You see, many of us hear truths like this and we can call and declare them beautiful, but we don't experience them as life-giving because when it comes down to it, the thought of trusting a father to provide for you is too distasteful for most of us. Because we've had fathers. And those of us with the best fathers have still had human fathers who fall short of us, who leave us, who fail us, who forsake us. And some of us have had awful fathers who left us or hurt us or did the opposite, providing for us. And so the image of God as a good and joyful Father who you can humbly and you can expectantly come to in dependence and trust is just too painful to grab a hold of for some of us in this room. And beloved, I understand that. But you can't get past that. You can't get past that. In the same way that our experience of the failings of A marriage can oftentimes embitter us to the thought of Christ as the bridegroom. Our experience of cursed and broken family can embitter us to the reality of of God as the good father. But beloved, you can't get past that. God is your good father. And he adopted you. And he's made you his family. And he loves you. Turn with me to Luke Chapter 11. This is probably my favorite text in the scripture. I know you're not supposed to have favorite Bible verses, but I do. This is right after Jesus teaches on uh, the uh, how to pray. This is right after he gives Luke's version of Uh, the Lord's Prayer, where he's teaching about what it means to come to God with your requests and come to God with expectation that he'll provide for you. And he says this, this starts in verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead of a fish will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Beloved, your God loves you. Your Creator, your Father loves you. He sees you. He hears you. He embraces you. He blesses you. He loves you. 
Even if you don't like that. Even if that's hard for you. Even if you ruffle against that and push against that because the embrace of a father is painful for you. Beloved, God does it anyway because he loves you that much. And he has time for his children. There is nothing so pressing to God that he does not have time for his children. You see, I love this passage because the image of it is ridiculous. <laughs> Who of you, if your kid asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? I'm just imagining breakfast time and like you got the hard boiled eggs going, you know, and your kid's like, give me an egg. And you're like, oh, I'll give you an egg. <laughs> I'm not going to say I've been tempted to do that, but I have. So (laughs) I just didn't have any scorpions on hand. But anyway, you get the image, right? It's ridiculous. If your kid was like, man, I would certainly love some fish for dinner, Dad. You wouldn't be like, sweet, have you ever seen a copperhead? (laughs) If we who are sinful, if we who are wretched, if we who are broken by the curse, know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more does your Heavenly Father delight in giving good gifts to His children? If you would rather give your kid a hard-boiled egg than a scorpion, what would God rather give you? Think about that. At the base level, no matter how distorted your view of God is, he's probably at least a better dad than I am. <laughs> right? I would never do that. Oh, how much more does God delight to provide for his children? And even as I say that, I know some of you push back and go, well then Why? Why this? Why this? Why this? Why is the world so terrible? Why was this done to me? Why did I experience this? Why am I addicted to this? Why? If God is such a good father, why? This week, I, when me and Craig were, were studying scripture together, and we read through the story uh, of Gideon being called by God, and there's this scene where God calls Gideon to, to this work, and Gideon responds with, where the heck have you been? You want me to be a part of this work? You're telling me to go do something for your kingdom? Well, what the heck? My people are oppressed and enslaved. Where's this awesome God I read about who, who split the Red Sea? And how many of us hear this truth and some piece of our heart goes there? Sure, God, sure, you're a good father. You're, you're a better dad than I am or my dad was. Sure, then how come my life looks like this? I believe it when I see it. I get that. Resonate with that. I understand that. We live in a cursed and broken world. And sin bears its weight and bears its face. And sin destroys what God made good. And that hurt and that pain is real. And that question is understandable. And beloved, my encouragement to you would be this. When you bring that question to God, when you accuse Him, 
And you push back and say, if you are such a good dad, why? I guarantee you, I guarantee you, his response will always be patient love. Because he is a good father. And because he has thick enough skin to take your accusation. And he has thick enough skin to bear your anger and your wrath. And he just embraces you. The same way he graciously met Gideon in his anger and frustration. And he met Gideon in his immaturity and his fear. And he still loved him and called him and drew him to something new. God is strong enough to bear your wrath. And still love you as his child. And still draw you in and embrace you. And still invite you into the life and freedom and joy and peace of his kingdom. I don't know why terrible things happen to people God loves. I don't. We could theologize about it. We could bust out our Reformed theology, systematic textbooks, and bust out doctrines and talk about it. And that's still doesn't make your experiences less painful, less traumatic, or less hurtful. But this I know. God is such a good Father. And He loves you so much. And He meets you in the midst of this beat up and broken and hurting world. And He loves and He embraces and He walks with you and He calls you to something new and to something life-giving and to something bigger and better and the curse you've experienced. Beloved, this is the truth of the kingdom. You notice in that passage that Jesus doesn't say, how much more will your God give you whatever you want? He says, how much more will your Father give you the Holy Spirit? See, what Jesus is saying there is that this world seems like all there is. It seems like the biggest thing. It seems like your pain and your suffering and your story are everything because they're so close to you. You can't see anything else. But beloved, God says there is a thing called the kingdom of God and it is bigger than you or your experience or your hurt. And you've been called into that. And in that there is life and there's freedom. And your hurts and this curse does not have to define you. And your mistakes and your sins do not have to define you. And the injustices that were done to you do not have to define you. Because even though they seem like the whole world, Jesus gently and lovingly embraces you and pulls you back and shows you the larger thing that is his kingdom and says, this is yours. This is yours. Step past that stuff. Let's move past that curse and that sin, and that injustice, and let me show you the kingdom that is yours, my child. Beloved, this is our good Father. This is the Father who says, I have time for my kids. I see my kids. I love my kids. I embrace and touch and bless my kids. This is the Father who says, Come here. Come here. This is the father who gets indignant with anything that keeps you from him. This is our Jesus. Beloved, 
I always tell the students this. It's this, it's this kind of basic theological truth I come back to a lot with the kids, where I just say, God is good, and he wants what is best for you, and if you can't wrap your head around that, you're not going to understand the gospel. God is good, and he wants what is best for you. This is the truth of the kingdom. Beloved, God is good. And he delights to provide for the needs of his children. He delights to provide for you. He loves you and sees you. If you want him, you have him. He will not withhold. He will not keep you from him. He has time for you, even today. So let's come together. For such is the kingdom. And such are those who experience it. Let's come together, kids. And let's ask Dad what's for dinner. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are just so good to us. Jesus, this morning, I ask that you would remind us. Remind us what it means to be loved and cared for by you. Remind us what it means to have, to have peace and trust and expectancy in you. God, in a few minutes, as we, as we spend time praying together and, and, and taking communion together and, and taking the elements and remembering your, your body broken and your blood poured out, and as we, as we sing these, these last few songs and as we just sit in this time, Holy Spirit, remind us Remind us what it means to be your child. To be loved and to be cared for. To not have to be strong and independent, but to be able to be trusting and weak and dependent on you. Jesus, for those hearts in this room that are wounded, remind us that you love to embrace and bless. Jesus, we love you. Trust you for these things. We pray them in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.